Good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I know it's Easter week, and today, Palm Sunday, and Friday, Good Friday, and next Sunday, Easter, of course. And so we are focused very intently on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, are we not? Uh, Especially this week. Obviously, Christians should be focused very intently on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ all the time, but especially this week. We're going to see today how one person's actions can affect many people. How one person's actions can affect many people. And you see this throughout history. You see this, you can see notable figures that impacted the people that they led and those that followed them. Go back to people like Alexander the Great, Joan of Arc, and people like that. You can think of people like Hitler and Stalin and Lenin and Marx and Gandhi and Mandela and Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and others. And what you see is that the actions of one affect many. The actions of one affect many. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, the verses we're going to look at today show us how one man's sin affected the whole human race and how one man's sacrificial death affects all believers. How one man's actions affect many. And here is what we will specifically see. Through Adam's sin, all became sinners. And they die. Through Christ's sacrifice, all believers are saved and live. And so if you're able, I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. We will see one act of righteousness that makes a huge difference. This is the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, 
so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would use this passage of Scripture to cause our love for Jesus to grow and cause us to grow in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So I've told you this before about me. Some of you think it's great, some of you don't. I am not a puzzle person. And everyone who's a puzzle person gives me the stink eye every time I say that. Actually, I am a puzzle person when I get to steal one of the puzzle pieces and stick it in my pocket. Come by a few hours later, right before it's over, right before it's finished. Everyone's looking for the final piece. Whoa, here it is. Ah, I finished the puzzle. I love that. I, that's the kind of puzzle person I am, all right? But tough puzzles are challenging, are they not? Uh, there is the Ravensburger Crypt Silver 654-piece blank puzzle. Uh, a completely blank surface, no picture to guide you through the assembly. Well, Romans 5, 12 through 21 is one of the most puzzling passages in the book of Romans. But this is the great part. While difficult, puzzling passages of Scripture have clues to guide us embedded in their context. And so I want to draw your attention first to verses 9 and 10 in chapter 5. And I'll just say this too. As we go through this, I hope that this makes a lot of sense to you, but this is a tough passage of Scripture. So you're going to need to listen up. You're going to need to stay with me. You're going to need to stay on point with me. And what I hope, when we get done with this, you say, wow, that makes perfect sense. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit gives us understanding as we look into this passage. Verses 9 and 10 uh, told us that justification and reconciliation in Christ guarantee how much more our hope is built on the certainty of God's promises. That we as believers will be saved from God's wrath on judgment day by Christ's blood and Christ's life. And what Paul is doing here in this passage is digging deeper into the how much more aspect of grace. He is painting a picture of mankind in Adam and believers in Christ. This is known as the federal headship of Adam and Christ, and it is rather tricky, but I want to get this uh, explained a bit up front, and that will drive us through and lead us through the passage. Federal headship refers to representing a group that is united under a federation or a covenant. Uh, a country's president might be the federal head of that nation and then represents that nation to the world. In our United States government, we 
vote and select representatives uh, who stand in for us, basically, and they represent our needs and desires during the lawmaking process. So when legislation comes up for a vote, the representative is supposed to do what the voters he represents would do if they were present in the legislature and stands in for the people. Now, you political types are like, that's not what happens, you know. Just don't get diverted by this idea, okay? Just stay with me here. Like a representative form of government, Adam was our representative concerning death and sin. And Jesus is the believer's representative concerning life and righteousness. The federal headship of Adam and Christ. Sin and death came into the world through Adam. Life and righteousness came into the world through Christ. Now, the great thing about this is that if we understand our death in Adam and our life in Christ as believers, it is going to help us understand more the depth of the gospel riches that we have in Christ, and it will cause our love for Jesus to grow, and it will cause us to grow in Christ. So there are two primary portraits in this, in this passage, two primary portraits that are being painted. The first we're going to see is how Adam's sin affects humanity, how it affects the entire human race. We'll see that in verses 12 through 14. The sin situation everyone finds themselves in. The second portrait we're going to see is how Christ's sacrifice affects all believers. And that's in verses 15 through 21. And you're going to see a contrasting and a comparing of Adam and Christ of sin and salvation. First, let's look at how Adam's sin affected the human race in verses 12 through 14. And you're going to see how mankind is affected by Adam. Verse 12 begins, therefore. Now, we have spent the last five weeks looking at verses 1 through 11 of Romans 5 and, and seeing all the reasons we have to rejoice in Christ. Beautiful reasons to rejoice in Christ. And Paul makes that passage so personal, we and us, all the way through. Now he's diving back in to explain some things about justification, and he says in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so sin entered into the world through one man. Now he's not referring to an individual sin here, like the one sin that Adam committed to bring us into this situation. He did commit one sin to bring us into this situation. But he's not talking about that individual sin. What he is talking about here is an ingrained, inherent proneness and propensity to sin that entered into the human experience when Adam sinned. Sin entered the world through Adam. Adam in Hebrew means man. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam sinned. And he didn't just do something wrong like, oops, I I shouldn't have done that. I won't do it again. This was an undoable thing. He invited into the world the enslaving power that reigns and must be obeyed in the world. We get into chapter 6 and we'll see this. So if you think about the logistics of the fall into sin, here's how it goes. In terms of distribution, 
Adam was the distributor of sin to every single person in the human race, including you and I. This is death through sin. In Adam's case, as soon as he sinned, the death sentence fell on him immediately. Death entered the world. A depravity, degradation, decay began. God kept his word. Genesis 2, 17, he said, When you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And so Adam died spiritually. He was cast from God's presence, but he also died physically. That day, his body started decaying. This was not the original plan. Now, he didn't die for a long time afterwards. But now his trajectory was not going to be eternal life, but he would die. And it came through sin. Adam was not originally subject to death, but through sin he was. And this led to, okay, his sin led to spiritual death. His sin led to physical death, but also eternal death, a.k.a. the second death. Not just eternal separation from God, but eternal torment in hell for those who refuse to believe. Adam sinned, so Adam died. Now here's the part that's really hard for a lot of people. Adam sinned, so Adam died, and the rest of us, with Adam as our federal head, sinned too and are under the power of death. Death comes to all as it tells us. Death spread to all men because all sinned. The consequence went to all. Adam's sin made everyone a sinner. Universal. Because Adam sinned, all humans sin. There's your federal headship of Adam. All sinned. Verse 19 tells us all were made sinners. We were were made sinners. Don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean, oh, you know, good people sin sometimes. You know, every once in a while they just, they sin. And it doesn't mean, you know, we just followed Adam's bad example. We'll be better. We won't do it anymore. That won't work. It's far worse. A basic change in our makeup happened in Adam that we are sinful because of what Adam did. So we're counted as sinners because of Adam. Now that might make some people to say, I don't like Adam. I'm going to blame Adam for my sin. You would have done the same thing if you were in his place. Oh, I don't know. I might have had more willpower. You know, I don't like pomegranates. Or apples, as some people think. We were not made sinners by following Adam's bad example. We were made sinners because of what Adam did. We sin because we inherited his sin nature. We are sinners by nature. Our predisposition is sinful. That's the doctrine of original sin. If you were wondering. When Adam sinned, all mankind sinned. So you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. 
there were consequences for Adam's sin. Through one man, we became sinners by nature. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They, they sin. And what Adam does is he passes on an inheritance, this inherent sin nature. You know, you get an inheritance and you're like, wow, I'm very thankful for that. This inheritance, you're like, can they give it to someone else? I don't want this inheritance. And you have it from the moment of conception. You're like, but I wasn't thinking. This is the way it is. Psalm 51 verse 5 tells us from the moment of conception. Romans 1 you know, shows us kind of how it went down through the ages and how people refused to acknowledge or worship God as a result of sin. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one's exempt. Sin spread to all people and it affects every aspect of your life. Think with me about genetics for a moment. You didn't get to choose the color of your hair or the color of your eyes when you were born. Now, some of you are choosing the color of your hair and the color of your eyes now. I understand, okay? A modern technology lets you choose a different color of eyes, let's say. Well, at least it looks like you have blue eyes, but you really have brown eyes, right? Some people will wear uh, some contacts that have a different color. And some people will sometimes color their hair. But all I can tell you is that when you were born, you couldn't choose the color of your eyes or the color of your hair. Blonde hair, brown hair, black hair, red hair, whatever you got, you got. And you couldn't choose the kind of diseases that you were susceptible to hereditarily. Everyone is all into uh, DNA genetic testing these days, right? Ancestry.com, 23andMe and all that. Let me save you 99 to $199. You're all sinners. You're all sinners. We are what we are. We're born dead in Adam. And don't we feel the weight, the pain of living in a world of sin and death? Don't we feel the pain and the weight of living in a body of sin and death? Life can get so messed up. We can go from a good mood to a bad mood in an instant. Relationships get so broken up. Thoughts get so twisted up. Death spread to all. It even lowered the mortality rate. You know, you open up your Bible and you're like, wow, people were living like 900 years. Wow. But what you see is it declines. It's, it's a descending scale. It didn't last for a long time. Early on in the early chapters of Genesis, God saw that the intent of mankind's heart was only continually evil. It led to the flood. It led to a restart. Second Timothy chapter 3, you read that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Our sinfulness horrifies us. It, it just shocks us. It, it repels And guess what? We don't even know the full depth of our sinfulness. 
And it's not Adam's fault. It's our fault. We'll blame, we bifurcate, we conflate, we foment, we conflagrate issues. We just mix it all up and we want to blame somebody else, but we actually have to own it. The Bible tells us the soul that sins must die. That each is accountable for their own sin, that we can't blame Adam. We can't blame someone else. Each person bears the guilt of their sin, and they're subject to death. Jonathan Edwards, uh, preaching in in 1753, said, as men come into the world, their natures are dreadfully depraved. Man in his primitive state was a noble piece of divine workmanship. But by the fall, it is dreadfully defaced. It is awful to think that so excellent a creature as man should be so ruined. C.H. Spurgeon, preaching in 1856 on the offense of the cross, said, Tell men that they are a very good sort of folk. They will like to hear that. Give people a good conceit of themselves. They will like to listen to you. But self-conceit is the ruin of tens of thousands. I am sure it is only when we begin to say, I am a poor sinner and nothing at all. Jesus Christ is my all in all that we are saved. As long as we are content with ourselves in our natural sinful condition, there is not the slightest hope for us. That's verse 12. Let's move on to verse 13 and then verse 14. In these next two verses, Paul's now going to talk about what difference the law of Moses made regarding sin. Let me stop for a moment and just make, it, make a, uh, a bit of a, of a difference here between sin and trespass or transgression. because You see it, both those words in this passage. To sin is to forfeit the glory of God by worshiping anything or anyone over God. But to transgress, to trespass, is to break a command of God. And Adam did both. He he sinned by desiring the fruit versus desiring God, Genesis 3.6. He trespassed or he transgressed by breaking God's command to not eat the fruit. That command was very clear in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. So verse 13 tells us, indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given. So before Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 through 27, before Mount Sinai, sin was in the world, sin entered through Adam, but sin is not counted or credited or imputed where there is no law. What that means is that all men were regarded as sinners, but there was no set list of commands, no strict accounting of specific violations, no list being kept of all the things they did right or wrong. From Adam to Moses, they they had no law yet. Adam was the spiritual father of all who sinned without the law. 
from Adam to Moses. But he's also the spiritual father of those who sin and trespass or transgress because they know the law. It's just saying everybody's guilty. This is like Abraham becoming the spiritual father of all who believe. Here's Adam, the negative head of all of fallen humanity. Those without the law, those with the law. Those from Adam to Moses, those from Moses onward. The purpose of the law was to show us that we could never make ourselves right with God. We couldn't do it. The law of God gives the knowledge of sin. The law of God makes it worse for you because it shines the light of truth on your sin. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, not like the trespass, who was a type of the one who was to come. So he was foreshadowing Christ. But death reigned. Literally, death became king. Death ruled as king. Without the law, death was universal. Everyone from Adam to Moses died, not because of sin against the law. They didn't have the law yet, but because of their sinful nature. But they had not sinned according to the trespass of Adam. The reason why, they didn't have any specific revelation like Adam had, or those who have the law had. They sinned against God's holiness. They sinned without law. Still guilty. This verse also tells us that that Adam was a type of him who was to come, which is an interesting statement, is it not? How was Adam a type or pattern of Christ? How was sinful Adam a type of Christ? Well, a type uh, meant an impression made by a molding maybe like, or like a wax seal. It was a person or event showing the, the shape of someone or something to come. And so the type corresponds to the antitype. So Adam is a type of Christ, the antitype. And there are many differences between them, obviously. But here's, here's the case. Adam did one action that affected a lot of people. So did Jesus. So Adam and Christ are similar in that their acts affected many others. This is what we see in these first three verses. Adam's sin affected the human race. Sin and death came into the world through Adam. That's the first part. And now we get to get to some good news here in verses 15 to 21, how Christ's sacrifice affects all believers. And you'll see a contrasting and comparing of of Adam and Christ, of sin and salvation. So he's transitioning here from Adam's sin to Christ's righteousness. What you could say about Adam is that he was a negative type of Christ. What what you see in in the following verses is a contrast. You see Adam's trespass, verse 15, 17, 18. You see Adam's sin, verse 16. You see Adam's disobedience, verse 19. In contrast with Christ's grace and gift of grace, two different words for grace being used, uh, a gift of grace and grace, verses 15 and 16. You see Christ's act of righteousness, verse 18. You see Christ's obedience, verse 19. So what you see kind of in in a nutshell is Adam's condemning act, Christ's redeeming act. Verse 15, uh, the death of many 
contrasted with the grace to many. And it talks about a free gift. Greek word is charisma here. It's an act of grace of God, a grace gift. And it's not like the trespass. It's not like it at all. It's totally different. It's totally opposite. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift, different word for for grace there, a free gift, an act of giving by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's much more, much better, much more abundant. Christ's one act of redemption is far greater than Adam's one act of condemnation. If you ever wonder how strong God's grace is, look no further than verse 16. It tells us how strong grace is. One sin led to judgment and condemnation. One sin. Judgment led to condemnation. You got two different words there, judgment and condemnation. What's condemnation? That's super judgment. You had judgment and super judgment. You had judgment and irrevocable judgment. And, and that one sin led to that. What did the gift of grace bring? Justification. So one sin did massive damage. One gift of grace in Christ undid the damage. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. It's the difference between building a house or tearing it down. The free gift is a concrete gift that God gives. It's a blessing that God gives. It's not like the result of Adam's sin. The judgment following one trespass led to condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The right time, God sent forth his son to die for sin. You think of all the sins that had been committed between Adam and when Christ died, and Adam's one sin led to judgment and condemnation, and the free gift, after all those trespasses and all those sins, brought justification. If you're a believer, you're not guilty. If you're a believer, you're forgiven. The gift, the salvation by grace, far better than the judgment and condemnation. Far better than God's guilty verdict. It's the opposite of justification, condemnation. There were many trespasses. Adam brought condemnation on all for his one act of disobedience. But Christ saves the elect from condemnation of all their sin. Justification. Praise God. You see a contrast. Verse 17. By the trespass of Adam, death reigned through Adam. So Adam's sin brought universal death. And guess what? Adam's sin bringing universal death. That's interesting, is it not? He got exactly the opposite of what Satan promised him. Satan said in Genesis 3.5, you'll be like God. And then you look at the gift of righteousness and those that will reign in life. Unlike Adam, Christ actually accomplished exactly what he intended. He disabled death's reign. It's like he diffused a huge bomb. It's like Christ was God's one-man bomb squad. 
much more. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift that we receive by faith of righteousness reign. The future reign. Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now here's an interesting thing. Verse 12 told us that there was a reign of death. So you'd think that verse 17 would just talk about a reign of life. But it doesn't. Look at it. Those who receive the abundance of grace, believers, will reign in life. He doesn't say reign of life. Instead, those who receive grace reign in life. So the opposite of the reign of death in Adam is the reign of believers who will do what Adam was supposed to do, honor and glorify God with his whole life. In Christ, what we learn, and we'll look at this in coming weeks, believers will rule the world. Believers will reign with Christ. Second Timothy chapter two, there's what's known as an early Christian hymn, and part of the words go like this. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. God gave Adam dominion over creation for God's glory. This was forfeited in the fall, but Christ reigned over creation as the last Adam, as the second Adam. So in him, in Christ, our original purpose of righteous rulers of the world is restored. All in Christ will reign with him forever. Now that's a future tense forever. Future tense of our future reign with the Lord. But think about this with me. Until then, by the Spirit indwelling us, we can reign over our sinful passions. We can, by the Spirit, conquer sin and grow in holiness. And by the Spirit, our hearts and our minds under Christ and His Lordship, by the power of the Spirit, through the Word, can actually please God. Because of God's abundant provision of grace, the overflowing grace of verse 15, the how much more grace of verses 16 and 17, the gift of saving righteousness in Christ received through faith. It takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 17. The righteousness of God revealed through faith in Christ. I love that. This tells us that the overflow of grace is more powerful than death. Move on to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The one act of sin is Adam's disobedience. But what is the one act of righteousness? It's Easter week, so it would be cool if it was the cross, right? What's the one act of righteousness? Is it the cross? Is it uh, Christ's righteous life? What is the one act of righteousness? Well, look at verse 19. Put your eyes there because there's the hint. Here's the clue to guide us. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you look at verse 18 and verse 19, and you got the, the trespass of verse 18 is the disobedience of the one man in verse 19. 
The act of righteousness in verse 18 is the obedience of the one man in verse 19. So what's the answer? What's the one act of obedience? What's the one act? It's actually, it's, it's the cross and the righteous life of Christ. It's all of it. It's all of it. One of my favorite verses is 1 Timothy 1.15. And it tells us this. It is a trustworthy statement. A great study is to go through all the trustworthy statements in the New Testament. It's awesome. But a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So we're not talking about just a single event. We're talking about Christ's overall obedience, which was capped by the greatest obedience, Philippians 2.8, death on a cross. So the one act of righteousness is the obedient life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which undid everything that Adam's sin ruined. By the way, his obedient life, Jesus' obedient life is known as his active obedience. His obedient death is known as his passive obedience because he let himself be led as a lamb to the slaughter. Even though God had, had purposed it from before the world began, he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, but he let himself be led to the cross and nailed to the cross and killed, be, and be killed. His active obedience, his obedient life, his passive obedience, his obedient death, that equals the entire act of obedience of the Son to the Father. It's literally from incarnation to the cross. It covers all of it. There's your one act of obedience all the way till it is finished in John 19, verse 30. Sin deforms us. It ruins us. But Christ transforms us righteousness came into the world through christ it was a free gift and it says to all men so we have to be careful about this right we have to say what does that mean in context it does not mean that all people will be saved salvation is only for those who have faith in christ and what you notice is that the all or the many affected by adam's sin are all humans without exception but the all and many Affected by Christ's obedience are all humans in Christ, all believers. Or made righteous, legal status before God. Christ's obedience is necessary for our justification. Our, our righteous status before God, by the way, you might be surprised to hear this, is a works righteousness. Our righteous status before God is a works righteousness. That's what verses 18 and 19 tell us. It is the only works righteousness that counts. It is the works righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can only have it by stopping your efforts to save yourself and make yourself righteous and rest in Jesus Christ alone and his finished work on the cross. Justification by faith alone means that you are justified by the works righteousness of Christ alone. Justification comes by one act of righteousness. And I think that that leads us to double down on imputed righteousness, on credited righteousness. And I think repetition is good. 
I've been harping on this since summer, I know, and the five solas and all that, and I, I just hope you get it. Preaching is a ministry of reminding. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, it is right to remind you of the things that you know. Well, knowing that we're sinners, knowing I'm a sinner and, and hearing that God justified me freely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is hard news to receive, humanly speaking. Our sins look us in the face every day like looking in a broken mirror. Sin is our living reality show. Death overshadows the best day ever. So I think we all understand what it, what it means to try to be justified by our works. Try harder, uh, use more effort, you might survive judgment. That's total falsehood, but we think that way. We actually think that way. And being told that we are declared instantaneously righteous, right with God by grace, that's humanly hard to feel confidence in. But it is the truth. It is the truth. It is what this book tells me. Tell that to your mirror this week as you're looking into it. The last two verses lead to a grand culmination, a grand point. But it starts interestingly, verse 20 and 21, the difference the law made. We've already talked about the law in verses 13 and 14, how the absence of the law did not make people innocent. Sin was in the world. Death reigned. Now he says, the presence of the law even makes you more guilty than you thought you were before. You like that? The guilty become more obviously guilty when the law is present. Verse 20, the law came in the law came in to increase the trespass. Made us more aware of our sinfulness and our inability to keep God's perfect standards. Galatians 3 says the law became a tutor to drive us to Christ. It's to show us our need for the only Savior. Adam's trespass was breaking God's command. Genesis 2. When the law was given to Israel, they just started breaking it right away. They just became not just um, guilty sinners, but guilty trespassers. Where sin increased, though, it's good news for us, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. There's your federal headship of Christ. Who in, who in Christ, we know this, all have sinned and not everyone is saved. It's tough for us to figure out. We'll see this in Romans 9. I love Romans 9, but for now, let's look at verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, rule as king, through righteousness. And here's, here's the culmination, Here, here's, the, here's the conclusion, the grand conclusion. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There, there you have it, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Romans, Romans 10, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. We must keep preaching this. This is life or death for survival. John Wesley said, Whoever, whosoever will reign with Christ in heaven must have Christ reigning in him on earth. Adam's sin led to condemnation. The cross leads to eternal life. Christ's death leads to our life. It was a real death. It was gruesome. It was at Calvary where he was crucified in a humiliating way and beaten and nails pounded in to his wrists and his feet nailed to the cross and, and he died. It was terrible. It was gruesome. And it was an extraordinary demonstration of the love of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. At the cross, my Savior died. His death was necessary. The blood had to be shed. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the first Peter 1 Peter 1.18 says you were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Revelation 1.5 says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. In our place. And it was effective Sins committed, forgiven, not guilty before God, confidence that you will be saved, ability to serve God with your whole heart. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Where Adam's sin affected the human race and sin and death came crashing into the world through Adam, like shrapnel causing carnage, the effects of sin all around, but Christ's sacrifice affects all believers. Righteousness and life came into the world through Christ. Jesus is our only hope. There is a Redeemer. Through his one act of righteousness, you have more than a sliver of hope. You have a living hope. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. How will that affect you today? How will that change how you live and talk and interact with people? As you feel the misery of living in a body of sin and death and living in a world of sin and death, how will the cross affect you? If you're a believer, let me just say, beloved, it's very easy to condemn yourself and feel condemned even when you're not. And the cross must affect that. It is our nature to believe Things about us that aren't true. It is our nature to, to not believe what the Bible clearly says about us and others. That those not in Christ are under condemnation for their sin. Those in Christ have eternal life, have justification, no condemnation. That's what we need to share with everyone. Right there, that truth. How many opportunities do I let pass on by to share the good news of, of, of the gospel? 
I love what Paul says in Colossians 4.3. Pray that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's a door only God can open. A door for the word. Any day is a good day to preach the gospel. Every Sunday is a good Sunday. You know, a lot of us are saying, well, that wasn't a good Sunday at church today. I'm glad I didn't invite my friends. Are you praying for good Sundays or for an open door for the word? Let's close. Let me say it again. Condemnation came through Adam. Eternal life comes through Christ. The comparison is beautiful beyond belief. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Greatest gift ever. Eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. One person said this, there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. Do you know that your identity is in Christ if you're a believer? And if someone asks you today, who are you? You might be tempted to tell them your occupation or your role in life. You might even be tempted to speak of your faults. Yes, we are one of Adam's race. We are sinners. But if you are in Christ, everything has fundamentally changed. At the deepest level, you've been made righteous, you have been justified, you will reign in life with Christ, you have eternal life with Christ, you are alive in Christ, you are a beloved man, woman, boy, or girl of God in Christ, you are accepted, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are being sanctified, you are being transformed because you have eternal life in Christ. That is the truth about believers. And Lord, thank you that we can know the truth and be set free by the truth. Thank you, Lord, that you chose your people from before the foundation of the world and that you love us and that you drenched our souls with mercy and love and, and even our unity as a body of Christ. You have blessed us with truth and love and mercy and forgiveness and godliness and humility because, because Christ's obedience his death for our sin is greater than the power of sin and death. Lord, by your grace, may, may we cherish Christ's obedience and that it would cause us to love Jesus more and that we would even tell someone today how much we love Jesus Christ, our representative who died and was buried and rose again and prays for us now and will return. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.